0: Chapter 31 of Martin Eden by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 31. Martin had encountered his sister Gertrude by chance on Broadway, as it proved a most propitious, yet disconcerting chance. Waiting by the corner for a car, she had seen him first and noted the eager, hungry lines of his face and the desperate, worried look of his eyes. In truth, He was desperate and worried. He had just come from a fruitless interview with the pawnbroker, with whom he had tried to wring an additional loan on his wheel. The muddy fall weather having come on, Martin had pledged his wheel some time since, and retained his black suit. "'There's the black suit,' the pawnbroker, who knew his every asset, had answered. "'You needn't tell me you've gone and pledged it with that Jew Lipka, because if you have—' The man had looked the threat, and Martin hastened to say, No, no, I've got it, but I want to wear it on a matter of business. All right, the mollified usurer had replied, and I want it on a matter of business before I can let you have any more money. You don't think I'm in it for my health. But it's a forty-dollar wheel, in good condition, Martin had argued. And you've only let me have seven dollars on it no, not even seven, six and a quarter. You took the interest in advance. If you want some more, bring the suit, had been the reply, that sent Martin out of the stuffy little den, so desperate at heart, as to reflect it in his face and touch his sister to pity. Scarcely had they met when the Telegraph Avenue car came along and stopped to take on a crowd of afternoon shoppers. Mrs. Higginbotham divined from the grip on her arm as he helped her on that he was not going to follow her. She turned on the step and looked down upon him. His haggard face smote her to the heart again. "'Ain't you comin?' she asked. The next moment she had descended to his side. "'I'm walking. Exercise, you know,' he explained. "'Then I'll go along for a few blocks,' she announced. Maybe it'll do me good. I ain't been feelin' too spry these last few days. Martin glanced at her and verified her statement in her general slovenly appearance, in the unhealthy fat, in the drooping shoulders, the tired face and the sagging lines, and in the heavy fall of her feet, without elasticity, a very caricature of the walk that belongs to a free and happy body. You'd better stop here, he said though she had already come to a halt at the first corner, and take the next car. My goodness, if I ain't all tired already, she panted, but I'm just as able to walk as you and them souls. They're that thin they'll just bust long before you get out to North Oakland. I've a better pair at home, was the answer. Come out to dinner tomorrow, she invited, irrelevantly. Mr. Higginbotham won't be there. He's going to San Leandro on business. Martin shook his head, but he had failed to keep back the wolfish, hungry look that leapt into his eyes at the suggestion of dinner. "'You haven't a penny, Mart, and that's why you're walking. Exercise!' She tried to sniff contemptuously, but succeeded in producing only a sniffle. "'Here, let me see.' And, fumbling in her satchel, she pressed a five-dollar piece into his hand. "'I guess I forgot your last birthday, Mart.' She mumbled, lamely. Martin's hand instinctively closed on the piece of gold. In the same instant he knew he ought not to accept, and found himself struggling in the throes of indecision. That bit of gold meant food, life, and light in his body and brain, power to go on writing, and, who was to say, maybe to write something that would bring in many pieces of gold." clear on his vision burned the manuscripts of two essays he had just completed. He saw them under the table, on top of the heap of returned manuscripts, for which he had no stamps, and he saw their titles just as he had typed them, The High Priests of Mystery and The Cradle of Beauty. He had never submitted them anywhere. They were as good as anything he had done in that line. If only he had stamps for them!— Then the certitude of his ultimate success rose up in him, an able ally of hunger, and with a quick movement he slipped the coin into his pocket. "'I'll pay you back, Gertrude, a hundred times over.' He gulped out, his throat painfully contracted, and in his eyes a swift hint of moisture. "'Mark my words,' he cried with abrupt positiveness. "'Before the year is out, I'll put an even hundred of those little yellow boys into your hand. "'I don't ask you to believe me. All I ask you to do is wait and see.' "'Nor did she believe. Her incredulity made her uncomfortable. "'And failing of other expedient,' she said, "'I know you're hungry, Mart. It's sticking out all over you. "'Come in to meals any time. I'll send one of the children to tell you when Mr. Higginbotham ain't to be there.' and Mart. He waited, though he knew in his secret heart what she was about to say. So visible was her thought process to him. Don't you think it's about time you got a job? You don't think I'll win out? he asked. She shook her head. Nobody has faith in me, Gertrude, except myself. His voice was passionately rebellious. I've done good work already, plenty of it, and sooner or later it will sell. How do you know it is good? Because, he faltered as the whole vast field of literature and the history of literature stirred in his brain and pointed the futility of his attempting to convey to her the reasons for his faith. Well, because it's better than ninety-nine percent of what is published in the magazines. I wished you'd listen to reason, she answered feebly but with unwavering belief in the correctness of her diagnosis of what was ailing him. I wish you'd listen to reason, she repeated, and come to dinner tomorrow. After Martin had helped her on the car, he hurried to the post office and invested three of the five dollars in stamps, and when, later in the day, on the way to the Morse home, he stopped in at the post office to weigh a large number of long, bulky envelopes he affixed to them all the stamps, save three of the two-cent denomination. It proved a momentous night for Martin, for after dinner he met Russ Brissenden. How he chanced to come there, whose friend he was, or what acquaintance brought him, Martin did not know. Nor had he the curiosity to inquire about him of Ruth. In short, Brissenden struck Martin as anemic and feather-brained, and was promptly dismissed from his mind. An hour later he decided that Brissenden was a bore as well. What of the way he prowled about from one room to another, staring at the pictures, or poking his nose into books and magazines he picked up from the table, or drew from the shelves? Though a stranger in the house, he finally isolated himself in the midst of the company, huddling into a capacious Morris chair, and reading steadily from a thin volume he had drawn from his pocket. As he read, he abstractedly ran his fingers, with a caressing movement, through his hair. Martin noticed him no more that evening, except once when he observed him chaffing, with great apparent success, with several of the young women. It chanced that when Martin was leaving, he overtook Brissenden already half down the walk to the street. "'Hello, is that you?' Martin said. The other replied with an ungracious grunt but swung alongside. Martin made no further attempt at conversation, and for several blocks unbroken silence lay between them. Pompous old ass! The suddenness and the virulence of the exclamation startled Martin. He felt amused, and at the same time was aware of a growing dislike for the other. What do you go to such a place for? was abruptly flung at him, after another block of silence. Why do you martin countered bless me i don't know came back at least this is my first indiscretion there are twenty-four hours in each day and i must spend them somehow come and have a drink all right martin answered the next moment he was nonplussed by the readiness of his acceptance at home was several hours hack-work waiting for him before he went to bed and after he went to bed there was a volume of Weissman waiting for him TO SAY NOTHING OF HERBERT SPENCER'S AUTOBIOGRAPHY, WHICH WAS AS REPLETE FOR HIM WITH ROMANCE AS ANY THRILLING NOVEL. WHY SHOULD HE WASTE ANY TIME WITH THIS MAN HE DID NOT LIKE, WAS HIS THOUGHT. AND YET, IT WAS NOT SO MUCH THE MAN, NOR THE DRINK, AS IT WAS WHAT WAS ASSOCIATED WITH THE DRINK, THE BRIGHT LIGHTS, THE MIRRORS, AND DAZZLING ARRAY OF GLASSES, THE WARM AND GLOWING FACES, AND THE RESONANT HUM OF THE VOICES OF MEN. That was it. It was the voices of men, optimistic men, men who breathed success and spent their money for drinks like men. He was lonely. That was what was the matter with him. That was why he had snapped at the invitation. As a bonita strikes at a white rag on a hook. Not since with Joe, at Shelley Hot Springs, with the one exception of the wine he took with the Portuguese grocer, had Martin had a drink at a public bar. Mental exhaustion did not produce a craving for liquor, such as a physical exhaustion did, and he had felt no need for it. But just now he felt desire for the drink, or rather, for the atmosphere wherein drinks were dispensed and disposed of. Such a place was the grotto, where Brissenden and he lounged in capacious leather chairs and drank scotch and soda. They talked, they talked about many things, and now Brissenden, and now Martin, took turn in ordering scotch and soda. Martin, who was extremely strong-headed, marvelled at the other's capacity for liquor, and ever and anon broke off to marvel at the other's conversation. He was not long in assuming that Brissenden knew everything, and in deciding that here was the second intellectual man he had met. But he noted that Brissenden had what Professor Caldwell lacked, namely, Fire, the flashing insight and perception, the flaming uncontrol of genius. Living language flowed from him. His thin lips, like the dies of a machine, stamped out phrases that cut and stung, or again, pursing caressingly about the inchoate sound they articulated, the thin lips shaped soft and velvety things, mellow phrases of glow and glory, of haunting beauty, reverberant of the mystery and inscrutableness of life. And yet again the thin lips were like a bugle, from which rang the crash and tumult of cosmic strife, phrases that sounded clear as silver, that were luminous as starry spaces, that epitomized the final word of science, and yet said something more, the poet's word, the transcendental truth, elusive, and without words which could express and which none the less found expression in the subtle and all but ungraspable connotations of common words, he, by some wonder of vision, saw beyond the farthest outpost of empiricism, where was no language for narration, and yet, by some golden miracle of speech, investing known words with unknown significances, he conveyed to Martin's consciousness messages that were incommunicable to ordinary souls. Martin forgot his first impression of dislike. Here was the best the books had to offer coming true. Here was an intelligence, a living man, for him to look up to. I am down in the dirt at your feet, Martin repeated to himself again and again. You've studied biology, he said aloud, in significant allusion. To his surprise, Brissenden shook his head. But you are stating truths that are substantiated only by biology,' Martin insisted, and was rewarded by a blank stare. "'Your conclusions are in line with the books you must have read.' "'I am glad to hear it,' was the answer. "'That my smattering of knowledge should enable me to shortcut my way to truth is most reassuring. As for myself, I never bother to find out if I am right or not. It is all valueless anyway. Man can never know the ultimate verities.' "'You are a disciple of Spencer!' Martin cried triumphantly. "'I haven't read him since adolescence, and all I read then was his education.' "'I wish I could gather knowledge as carelessly.' Martin broke out half an hour later. He had been closely analyzing Brissenden's mental equipment. "'You are a sheer dogmatist, and that's what makes it so marvelous." You state dogmatically the facts which science has been able to establish only by a posteriori reasoning. You jump at correct conclusions. You certainly shortcut with a vengeance. You feel your way with the speed of light, by some hyper-rational process to truth. Yes, that was what used to bother Father Joseph and Brother Dutton, Brissenden replied. Oh, no, he added, I am not anything— it was a lucky trick of fate that sent me to a Catholic college for my education. Where did you pick up what you know? And while martin told him, he was busy studying Brissenden, ranging from his long, lean, aristocratic face and drooping shoulders to the overcoat on a neighboring chair, its pockets sagged and bulged by the freightage of many books. Brissenden's face and long, slender hands were browned by the sun excessively browned martin thought this sunburn bothered martin it was patent that brissenden was no outdoor man then how had he been ravaged by the sun something morbid and significant attached to that sunburn was martin's thought as he returned to a study of the face narrow with high cheekbones and cavernous hollows and graced with as delicate and fine an aquiline nose as martin had ever seen There was nothing remarkable about the size of the eyes. They were neither large nor small, while their color was a nondescript brown. But in them smoldered a fire, or rather, lurked an expression dual and strangely contradictory. Defiant, indomitable, even harsh to excess, they at the same time aroused pity. Martin found himself pitying him, he knew not why, though he was soon to learn. "'Oh, I'm a lunger,' Brissenden announced, offhand, a little later, having already stated that he came from Arizona. "'I've been down there a couple of years, living on the climate. "'Aren't you afraid to venture it up in this climate? "'Afraid?' "'There was no special emphasis of his repetition of Martin's word. "'But Martin saw in that ascetic face the advertisement that there was nothing of which it was afraid.' The eyes had narrowed till they were eagle-like, and martin almost caught his breath as he noted the eagle beak with its dilated nostrils, defiant, assertive, aggressive, magnificent was what he commented to himself, his blood thrilling at the sight. Aloud he quoted, Under the bludgeoning of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. You like Henley, Brissenden said, his expression changing swiftly to large graciousness and tenderness. Of course, I couldn't have expected anything else of you. Ah, Henley, a brave soul. He stands out among contemporary rhymesters, magazine rhymesters, as a gladiator stands out midst a band of eunuchs. You don't like the magazines, Martin softly impeached. Do you? Was snarled back at him so savagely as to startle him. "'I I write, or rather try to write, for the magazines,' Martin faltered. "'That's better,' was the mollified rejoinder. "'You try to write, but you don't succeed. "'I respect and admire your failure. "'I know what you write. "'I can see it with half an eye. "'And there's one ingredient in it that shuts it out of the magazines. "'It's guts. "'And magazines have no use for that particular commodity.' What they want is wishwash and slush, and God knows they get it, but not from you. I'm not above hack-work, Martin contended. On the contrary. Brissenden paused, and ran an insolent eye over Martin's objective poverty, passing from the well-worn tie and the saw-edged collar to the shiny sleeves of the coat, and on to the slight fray of one cuff, winding up and dwelling on Martin's sunken cheeks. On the contrary, hack-work is above you, so far above you that you can never hope to rise to it. Why, man, I could insult you by asking you to have something to eat. Martin felt the heat in his face of the involuntary blood, and Brissenden laughed triumphantly. A full man is not insulted by such an invitation, he concluded. You are a devil, Martin cried irritably. Anyway, I didn't ask you you didn't dare. Oh, I don't know about that. I invite you now. Brissenden half rose from his chair as he spoke, as if with the intention of departing to the restaurant forthwith. Martin's fists were tight-clenched, and his blood was drumming in his temples. Bosco, he eats em alive, eats em alive! Brissenden exclaimed, imitating the spider of a locally famous snake-eater. "'I could certainly eat you alive,' Martin said, in turn running insolent eyes over the other's disease-ravaged frame. "'Only I'm not worthy of it.' "'On the contrary,' Martin considered. "'Because the incident is not worthy.' He broke into a laugh, hearty and wholesome. "'I confess you made a fool of me, Brissenden, that I am hungry, and you are aware of it, are only ordinary phenomena, but there's no disgrace.' You see, I laugh at the conventional little moralities of the herd. And then you drift by, say a sharp true word, and immediately I am the slave of the same little moralities. You were insulted," Brissenden affirmed. I certainly was, a moment ago. The only prejudice of early youth, you know. I learned such things then, and they cheapen what I have since learned. They are the skeletons in my particular closet you've got the door shut on them now i certainly have sure sure then let's go get something to eat i'll go you martin answered attempting to pay for the current scotch and soda with the last change from his two dollars and seeing the waiter bullied by brissenden into putting that change back on the table martin pocketed it with a grimace and felt for a moment the kindly weight of Brissenden's hand on his shoulder. End of chapter 31